Good afternoon, Dr. Dan Guerra here, Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest of the beautiful USA. Today is the 3rd of March, 2022. And I'm going to um, continue my discussion of diabetes and diseases associated with it. So we've been speaking about cholangitis, and specifically now I want to talk about both intrahepatic and extrahepatic cholangiocarcinomas. So, and um, the intrahepatic I'll just call ICC and the extrahepatic ECC. Now, these carcinomas are relatively rare, but prominent enough that we discuss them in association with metabolic disease. And also, as I said, with some kinds of infections that can arise. These cholangiocarcinomas come from epithelial cell of the bile duct, as the name would suggest. And the etiology of both of those types of cancer, even um, after a tremendous amount of study, is still rather um, misunderstood. So people um, have been looking at doing a bit of... Um, oh, I guess you could call a broad-based screening of the literature. Not really a meta-analysis, but what they call a surveillance epidemiology and end results resource or a SEER resource. And they were using Medicare data. And basically, this was a paper published in PLOS One about, uh, well, in 2017, late 2017. So they looked at uh, ICC and ECC in uh, American human subjects from the years 2000, 2011, and they, uh, 2011, and they had about 2,100 ICC and almost 3,000 ECC cases. And they compared those to a really large number of controls, about 325,000. And again, using this SEER Medicare database, they did a log logistic regression to calculate adjusted odds ratios. And they, of course, used 95% CI. Now, what they found was that a non-alcoholic fatty liver disease was most often associated an approximately threefold increased risk for ICC. So the odds ratio was pretty high, 3.5. And the confidence interval there was between 2.87 and 4.32. Now, with ECC, the odds ratio was close to that. It was 2.93, uh, with a CI between 2.42 and 3.55. So that suggests there's a correlation there, right? Pretty good correlation. They talk about other metabolic conditions, of course, type 2 diabetes, that's why we're discussing it, and obesity-linked type 2 diabetes. You can look at those two things separately. <clears throat> and those are definitely associated increased risks for both of the ICC and ECC. As one might guess, smoking was also linked to both of these uh, cholangiocarcinomas. Um, you had anywhere from... A 46% to a 78% increase in ICC versus ECC risk uh, with smokers, okay? Also linked to this, and I would say it's directly linked to the obesity, 
uh, are autoimmune inflammatory responses, including um, those associated with diabetes directly. These would include the molecular events surrounding insulin resistance and fatty acid oxidation and the production of foam cells, something we touched upon last lecture. But you also see these cholangiocarcinomas, of course, with type 1 diabetes. And this would be a direct uh, association in terms of the inflammatory response with the annihilation of the beta cells. <clears throat> and gout, we mentioned also, uh, which can be peripheral throughout the body. Um, and again, that seems to have some linkage with these two cholangiocarcinomas, as we mentioned. Viral hepatitis, alcohol-related diseases, any bile duct obstructions are also associated with varying degrees to both of the cancers that we just mentioned. Uh, hemochromatosis, uh, this is a genetic disorder, it has to do with iron buildup in the liver. It's also been linked to um, both of these cholangiocarcinomas, the ICC and the ECC. So it's quite variable, but the major contributing condition that has shown an increase in these carcinomas has been the obesity epidemic and linking that to T2D, type 2 diabetes, or that type 3 diabetes we talked about that showed a lot of pancreatic damage, if you will recall. So that's where I basically want to leave you on that regard. It's just kind of like a very general introduction. So let's get into more detail of the disease. We have what's known as primary sclerosing cholangitis. And of course, it is chronic. It's cholestatic liver disease. And its etiology is, again, examined via the progression and destruction of intra and extra hepatic bile ducts. So PSC, primary sclerosing cholangitis, is highly associated with IBD, that's inflammatory bowel disease. 60-80% of the patients with PSC also have uh, ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. Patients with PSC have about a 15% lifetime incidence of any form of cholangiocarcinoma. And if you uh, take a look at that value, what that is is almost a 400-fold increased risk as compared to the general population, right? So very high risk factor if you have IBD, right? You can pick up PSC. This is not a good uh, prognosis, right? Suggested that cholestasis leads to, the, the fir at first phase, number exposure of the cholangiocytes to, directly to bile acids, which can be themselves carcinogenic because what the initial phase of this exposure will do is cause abnormal cell proliferation and then subsequent cholangiocarcinogenesis. So models have been uh, set up in the, in the mouse and the rat, and, they and those models have shown that uh, direct uh, addition of bile acids will cause the epidermal growth factor receptor to become phosphorylated by a specific kinase, and that is often a biomarker for cholangiocarcinoma, 
because you get immortalized cholangiocyte cells. That then, of course, will lead, this is in cell culture, but that will lead, presumably, in vivo, to growth and proliferation of, uh, of those cell lines. <clears throat> so, because primary sclerosing cholangitis causes cholestasis, the prolonged exposure of the cholangiocytes to bile is probably a very significant factor to the cancer. So the fibropolycystic liver diseases, these are known as the FPLDs, are another condition we need to discuss because they're associated with cystic lesions in the liver. And that is associated with liver fibrosis. We've talked about this. And also there is a kidney or renal abnormality function. This whole system, this liver damage and this renal damage arises from an abnormal development of embryonic sheet of biliary precursor cells. This is also known as the ductal plate. And that plate forms the intrahepatic bile ducts and indeed the cholangiocytes. So fibropolycystic liver disease, FPLD, includes um, a congenital hepatic fibrosis. Uh, and as I mentioned, the Caroli disease, the cholodocal cysts and biliary hamartomas, ones I mentioned last time. Those diseases, all those I just mentioned, including Caroli, are uh, collectively have somewhere between a 15 20% risk of developing cholangiocarcinoma. Now, the risk of a malignant transformation in fibropolycystic liver disease will vary depending on when the diagnosis is made. So a lifetime risk in patients with cholodochal cysts is pretty low, 15 or 20 percent. But cholangiocarcinogenesis secondary to biliary microhamartomas is actually far more rare, and it's even debatable if that's a risk factor. So see, if you do these long-term uh, analyses, you don't necessarily see that close of a correlation. There is an increased risk is in, uh, when you look at either one of these cellular mass alterations, and that's due to a chronic inflammatory disorder. And of course, that will impair biliary drainage. Now, where do we get chronic inflammation in the bile duct? That's correct. From type 2 diabetes and associated morbidity. And of course, that's linked to obesity. So remember that the underlying theme here is the overexposure of the cholangiocytes to bile acids, secreted bile acids. This is where it fits back in with the digestive system, remember. And these bile acids can then form what are known as deconjugated carcinogens. And then they will then become conjugated usually with carbohydrate and the covalent bond. Um, sometimes with uh, deoxycholic acid as well in the liver. And then you get a reflux back in and out of the pancreatic uh, cells. And this will cause pancreatic secretions that are enriched with 
bile acids and bile acid conjugates. This will then cause the inflammation of the bile duct and can also lead further to bacterial disease. Not a good thing at all. Now, all this is linked to obesity and type 2 diabetes. In fact, diabetes increases the risk of ICC and ECC directly. There was a meta-analysis done um, not that long ago, about 2015, and a meta-analysis of the literature. And this was, it looks like 15 different case control studies and five cohort studies. Pretty good population size and then number here. There was over 10,000 patients, all with cholangiocarcinoma, and they had a huge control population in that cohort, over 350,000. And they found they had a combined odds ratio of 1.75, although a certain degree of heterogeneity was seen in the subgroup analysis of some of those populations. There was another uh, meta-analysis done for type 1 and type 2 diabetes, separating them out. And though that study, another meta-analysis, also found raised odds ratios for both ICC and ECC. So for the type 1 diabetes, the odds ratio is 1.4 for ICC and 1.3 for ECC. The type 2 diabetes is a little bit higher, odds ratio of 1.5 for ICC and about close to 1.5 again for ECC, all right? And of course, I want to reemphasize, obesity is directly associated with the ICC and ECC incidents likely associated directly with or linked directly with the type 2 diabetic um, paradigm, okay? Now, two recent meta-analysis looking at non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, that's NAFLD, and the incidence of cholangiocarcinoma uh, was performed. Now, what this showed was that NAFLD, which of course is essentially just hepatic steatosis in the absence of any other cause of hepatic fat accumulation, the other, of course, would be... <laughs> excessive alcohol consumption, or maybe much more rarely, hypothyroidism. So the non-alcoholic fatty liver um, can occur at the same time, but not necessarily with the non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, which is known as NASH. And basically that is a chronic inflammation associated with obesity and type 2 diabetes. So the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease confers almost a threefold increased risk of ICC or ECC. So it's definitely NASH, leading sometimes to hepatocellular carcinoma, will also um, de- derive the same uh, set of conditions that will give you the, um, the, the colon, uh, colon, cholangiocarcinomas, okay? So what are the mechanisms? Well, obviously diabetes and obesity and NAFLD have an axis. You can talk about leptin, which is of course an adipokine. And leptin is that hormone we spent some time on the last month, uh, which controls satiety. Remember that leptin binds its receptor uh, in the accurate nucleus of the hypothalamus, and it controls the expression of two different neuronal uh, axes. One is the NPY, 
um, agouti-related protein, and the other one is the POMC and the cocaine-related protein, right? That was on the other uh, side of that axis. So remember that you suppress the orexigenic and you increase the anorexigenic, and that is the satiety signal, right? And so we talked about that being related to diabetes and to fatty liver and to fatty acid desaturase activities in the last four or five different arcs of lectures. So I'm bringing it all back into your mind, okay? So it looks like leptin itself, which of course, as I just explained in more detail, uh, is a, a different kind uh, that is sent from the adipose into the arcuate uh, nucleus of the hypothalamus, thus inducing a sensation of satiety that becomes a neuronal equivalence in the prefrontal cortex, right? Because it signals there that all of that is linked to excessive adipose tissue when you have a lot of leptin. And we talk what happens after that is you get leptin resistance, right? Now I'm telling you weeks later that high levels of leptin secretion and leptin resistance sequelae following will also enhance cholangiocarcinoma. So it seems like excess adipose tissue directly, which is, of course, obesity, will cause a systemic inflammatory response, release of inflammatory cytokines, the the normal players, IL-6, right, Uh, and TNF-alpha, and then that will cause this hepatic inflammation and cirrhosis and fibrosis, and you're right back into these um, cancer-causing mechanisms. So you have basically a low-grade systemic inflammation, and that also contributes to insulin resistance, and insulin resistance, yes, will be the one of the major developmental correlations with type 2 diabetes. And of course, the insulin resistance that you see in NAFLD and diabetes uh, and obesity all result from a compensatory systemic hyperinsulinemia and an increase in the incretins once again, insulin-like growth factor one, and the production of it in the liver, okay? So we talked about those other incretins. I'm adding one more IGF-1. So IGF-1 binds its receptor, IGF-1R, and that leads, if you'll recall, to the chromatin retailering-induced upregulation of gene expression that links to cell proliferation. Uh, And of those cells that proliferate, extended cell division cycles. So it could be that the cholangiocytes um, from normal livers simply don't express these high levels of IGF or uh, IGF-1R, the receptor. And so that's why you don't see this cholangiocarcinoma. And when you have the biopsies done on the diseased livers, you do see increases for staining in IGF-1 and or IGF-1R. Remember, that's the receptor. 
And this is what you find in the cholangiocarcinomas, okay, that are derived upon autopsy. And also upon autopsy, when you look at the liver, you have a higher prevalence in those patients that passed away from this disease. Somewhere around 50% of them have NAFLD, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And uh, at least two-thirds of them also have diabetes. So all three conditions that are characterized by hepatic steatosis, chronic inflammation, insulin resistance, and upregulation via um, the chromatin retailering phenomenon, also some epigenetic phenomena um, because of sirtuin activity, uh, which is going to modulate acetylation of histones and also some methylation patterns on uh, CPG islands, which will convert that signaling, including the histone code, into an alteration of gene expression at the epigenetic level, which will all contribute downstream after obesity, type 2 diabetes, insulin resistance, and the corruption of the satiety signal at the POMC and PY nuclei and the arcuate nucleus of the hypothalamus to cholangiocarcinogenesis. Now, we can talk a little bit about liver cirrhosis. We know what that is, but let me explain it to you. I know that the surgeons and the most clinicians know of this. Liver cirrhosis has to do with a diffuse fibrosis and a nodule formation. And that occurs as a result of chronic liver cell injury, hepatocytic injury. So the causes of the cirrhosis can include ethanol. uh, And so you get ethanol or alcohol, they call it associated cirrhosis, but you also get NASH. And this has to do with lipid or fatty deposit, either as cholesterol ester or triacylglycerol in the liver. It doesn't get mobilized from the lipoprotein uh, pathways, which we went over to some extent these last two lectures. So steatohepatitis is the end result there. Also the viral hepatitis, we talked about that. Um, And we talked about autoimmune hepatitis. And then all of these associative metabolic disorders uh, and sometimes also an outright toxicity from, for example, lipotoxicity. So with all of those uh, etiologies in mind, when you do a population-based analysis of just simple cirrhosis, you will find a heightened risk for intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma. So there was a huge meta-analysis done in 2012. Um, I'll just uh, briefly tell you there were seven case control studies, uh, and the the end number for those studies was over 330,000 patients. And they found there that cirrhosis had an odds ratio of 22.9. That's really, really high. And that high odds ratio, remember odds ratio of one means there's basically no correlation. So this is 22.9 OR. So that means that for intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma, the ICC, it's highly associated with a previous diagnosis of liver cirrhosis. Again, why? It's probably due to the tissue microenvironment. So in what is that? We just went over it. 
chronic inflammation, rapid cell turnover, including autophagy and various types of programmed cell death, which will induce inflammation. These would be ferritosis, for example. Um, and this feeds right back into our discussions about how obesity is a global autoimmune and chronic inflammatory disease. Right? So this is why we keep on hitting on this. When we talk about um, obesity and all of these terrible metabolic diseases that follow. So when you think about the liver microenvironment, you can fully understand why you get increases in ICC and ECC, right? But why is this mechanism correlated so well between the two? So intrahepatic makes sense because of what's going on in the hepatocytes, but you also have extrahepatic uh, cholangiocarcinomas. So that means, and when I say extrahepatic, right, that you have to bring in uh, the gut microbiome and you have to bring in dysbiosis, something I mentioned last lecture. And this then may correlate with, for example, this has been well-described inflammatory bowel diseases with some kind of, well, let's just call it a alteration of normal gut microflora. I'm not going to say with specific species of bacteria here because the literature uh, is replete with naming bacteria that often are not found when you still find the same uh, inflammatory bowel disease in other patient populations. But I did bring up some of those bacteria. We'll go back and talk about them again. Right now, I just want to say just alterations in gut microflora is enough to induce an inflammatory response. And the inflammatory response is because you've altered the infection court uh, of, of the gut microbiome, and this will lead to an increase in the, uh, basically, the cell division of pathogenic bacterial species. Once you get increases in pathogenic species uh, division, meaning increases in the titer of those bacteria, then you can get some back up and you can get bacterial contamination up that biliary tree, and now you're right back into that uh, uh static and phenomena we just talked about, leading directly to cholangiocarcinoma. So this is believed how you get ECC, the extrahepatic um, cholangiocarcinoma. And it's also been uh, recognized that this, this is what is going on with the perihylar cholangiocarcinomas. And that's the reason you can make that assumption is because of a anatomical proximity uh, to the liver parenchyma, right? uh, and that is closely linked to the hepatic uh, cellular environment. So <clears throat> we can finish today's lecture. Let me see how much time I've got here. Yeah, let's go pretty quickly here. We can finish with going all the way back to pancreatic exocrine insufficiency, or PEI. Remember that that's a reduction in pancreatic enzyme activity in the intestinal lumen, and it means a decrease to a level below what is a threshold that's necessary for normal digestion. Okay. I remember I, I warned you that when we start talking about obesity and about diabetes, there's all those endpoints related to insulin 
and insulin resistance and uptake of glucose and uh, corruption of adipose triacylglycerol biosynthesis, sphingolipid metabolism in the adipose, as well as in the kidney, the liver, the pancreas, the lung, right? Um, well, here I'm reminding you that digestion itself is a major um, functional abnormality that helps um, enhance these cancers. And it starts off one of the early phases of it, because we know this, remember, from the scanning of the type 1 diabetic uh, kids, the pancreatic exocrine insufficiency. So that's how I got all the way back to that, okay? Um, so anything that corrupts pancreatic parenchyma, and that can include things like cystic fibrosis or post-necrotizing acute pancreatitis, right? Anything that can lead to the prodromal uh, PEI can also lead to all of that downstream uh, failure of digestion and failure of digestion can then corrupt the entire um, glucose homeostasis, lipid homeostasis, all the way at the level of circulating uh, lipoproteins. So I'm going to leave you with that, okay? Kind of swirling around lipoproteins again in circulation and a little bit in the lymphatic system. Um, saying that this is uh, authentic biochemistry, uh, and it is the 3rd of March, 2022, so we're already three full days in Yahoo, uh, this great month, a transitional month back to springtime, don't you know? Dr. Dan Guerra here uh, from Authentic Biochemistry Studios saying bye for now. <laughs>